Asymmetrical Haircuts, Justice Update, with Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg, in partnership with justiceinfo.net. Hi, Steph. Hi, Janet. So I finally managed to get a few words out of Kareem Khan on the Israel-Palestine situation. Any human being, one doesn't need to be the prosecutor of the ICC. Um, Any human being's heart must be chilled and frozen and heartbroken at seeing the pictures that are coming out of Israel and, and Palestine these last few days. There's been many pictures over years, but what we've seen is really heartbreaking. I think that's the only word to use. I'm not going to pick on particular instances. I think one has heard accounts on video from people that are in tears about what they have seen and witnessed. One has seen pictures of people that appear to be uh, dead, sometimes with faces blurred from open sources and uh, sometimes not people that have been carried partly clothed or, or naked, and one has seen people being pulled out of rubble. Um, and I think the job of the ICC, the job of my office, and my job as a prosecutor, is to investigate incriminating and exonerating evidence equally uh, to get to the truth, and that's what we're trying to do. Wow, Steph. I was amazed that you managed to, to get this. I know, know that you did it in your Reuters capacity, your day job. How did it come about? I think the pressure was really mounting on Khan's side that he should say something about the situation. Uh, we also know that he doesn't like to talk about every individual situation. And his big argument is then I would have to go around and commenting on everything that happens. But I think what happened was just we sent messages almost daily. Is he ready to talk now? Is he ready to talk now? We could have a camera there by X hours or whatever. And in the end, I think they either got fed up with us asking or got fed up with everybody asking and thought that if we give it to a big news agency, then it will be widely distributed and and that's it. So you wore him down. For context, we're recording today on Monday, the 16th of October. It was last week that Hamas militants massacred around 1,400 Israeli citizens in southern Israel, including very many women and children. Hamas also abducted 126, that's the number that we know as of today, Israelis, and took them back to the Gaza Strip as hostages. And we should also say that there were huge barrages of uh, rocket attacks from Hamas onto Israeli towns and villages. And there's been a few incursions also in the north from uh, Hezbollah. And uh, we have to say that since the weekend before last that that, uh, the Hamas attack happened, Israel has then, in response, pounded uh, the Gaza Strip with shells. Uh, It's cut off electricity, water and humanitarian supplies and has told the million plus Gazans living in the northern part of the Strip to move to the south, apparently in preparation for possibly a ground war. And they have repeatedly stated their plan that they want to eradicate or obliterate Hamas in the north of the tiny territory. And there's uh, huge numbers on the Palestinian side as well of casualties, particularly hundreds of children who've been uh, killed in uh, the the current uh, attack there. Plus, we're operating in an environment where there are loads of social media reports going around, lots of disinformation from uh, either side. We know that the casualties are just going to go up. They're already incredibly high. Palestinians are rising right now, and we know when the Israeli incursion starts, then on the Israeli side, they'll, they'll rise again. It's just a very bloody war. Uh, with lots of civilians uh, dying. So I assume that you also asked Khan kind of some other questions, some of his perspectives. What what did you also ask him about? We specifically asked about jurisdiction, mostly, and I know that some people have seen the Reuters story about the interview and said that he only talked about Hamas. I want to put it out there that that is because we specifically asked him about well, the the Office of the Prosecution, in his view, had jurisdiction over alleged uh, atrocity crimes committed by uh, Palestinian citizens on Israeli territory. So that is the kind of Hamas incursions and the people who are on the ground allegedly killing people. And we ask that specifically because we know from court rulings and earlier statements of the ICC Office of the Prosecutor that the jurisdiction of Palestine territory is not contested by the OTP or the judges, but we wanted to get a clear answer on that. And here is Karim Khan answering our question about, about jurisdiction very specifically. 
Well, the Rome Statute is clear. We have jurisdiction on the territory of a state party, and we have jurisdiction in relation to conduct committed by nationals of state parties. So Palestine is a state party. If there is evidence that uh, uh, Palestinians, whether they're Hamas or uh, Al-Qasim Brigade, the armed wing of Hamas or any other person, or any other national of any other state party has committed crimes, yes, we have jurisdiction wherever they're committed, including on the territory of Israel. What else did he have to say on uh, the investigation itself, Where, I mean, which is a long, long time been coming? I mean, they've been looking back at the events in 2014. That's uh, nearly a decade ago, uh, the start of the investigation. And that's yeah, how long this has been going on for. What did he say about uh, the investigation itself? Well, we asked him also very specifically because he had a figure for the Palestine investigation and it was the lowest of all the kind of investigation he was prioritizing this year. And so we asked him if it was easy for him to ramp up funds and would they put more money and more people on Palestine? And he responded to us just with the general complaint of of underfunding of the court. There's been a perennial problem that uh, the court as a whole in my office is not being properly funded. Uh, to do the jobs and to vindicate the legitimate rights of survivors uh, around the world. Uh, There wasn't a team for Palestine when I assumed my responsibilities in June 2021. There was an investigation without a permanent team. I've established a team throughout the last two years. I've increased the resources of the team. In the budget that is currently being considered by the Assembly of State Parties, we've requested additional funds. Palestine, but every other situation that we have is underfunded and under-resourced. And it's a challenge to state parties and the international community, whether they wish to give us the tools to do the job. I think Khan gave us the interview to take off some of the pressure on the ICC that we saw on social media to react to events in Israel and the Palestinian territories. But you've seen, just like I have, I'm sure, uh, stuff uh, from Human Rights Watch. I also saw from an official group of British lawyers this idea that previously the Office of the Prosecutor has issued kind of official formal statements. I I don't know whether you asked him about that. We didn't ask him specifically about that, but he did kind of say in the interview that he didn't want to have to give a statement about every, uh, every situation and kind of gave a very subtle swipe at earlier prosecutors who gave lots of statements about different Uh, situations. And he said that he wanted to put all his efforts in investigating and proving these cases in court and not just making some media statement that would get a lot of attention. And then the trial later would not get as much attention. Yeah, I'd put the same question to the deputy prosecutor, Nazat Shamim Khan. She's actually officially in charge of the whole Palestine investigation. It comes in her kind of block of uh, different situations that uh, that she looks after at the court. I was speaking to her during the summer and had asked her why the office of the prosecutor no longer seems to want to use its uh, ability to, you know, be some kind of a bully pulpit and and uh, tell everybody that uh, they they are playing a role. The prosecutor's position on this is very clear, I think. And that is that we are evidence-led as an office. Uh, We would prefer to speak through our applications in court and that we should speak when we know that we do have evidence sufficient to bring somebody before the court. So making statements before that process, when we don't know whether we have evidence or not in relation to any particular perpetrator, and also making statements about a situation when we don't yet, we haven't yet made a determination on the evidence and the jurisdiction of the court in relation to that situation, really is preemptive of our processes. So I know very valuable politically for those victims who might look to us, you know, for us to make a statement such as that. But uh, the prosecutor's position is very, very clear. And I have to say, it's a position taken by many domestic prosecutors around the world that we wait for the evidence and then we make our statement. Uh, we don't, uh, we're not the big bogeyman saying, you know, the ICC, uh, we are here, we're watching you, we're ready to step in. I can understand why many people would like us to say those things, but uh, actually the prosecutor's position is we wait for the evidence. 
in this whole discussion about the ICC response, it also what really struck me is that apparently there are, are people who believe that there is such a thing as a formal statement from the ICC and that there's a kind of procedure that they always do this or that. Well, it's really a kind of cobbled together situation. You know, the first prosecutor, Luis Moreno Ocampo, enjoyed inviting all the journalists and basically talking ex cathedra and giving sweeping statements. The second prosecutor, Fatou Bensouda, was much more uncomfortable with that on a personal level to give these kind of press conferences. So she would issue statements a lot or just record a video of her saying something. And so then it seems like that is the way the ICC has always done it. But it seems to me that says much more about the personality of the prosecutor, what kind of reaction you get. And Khan, although he is very comfortable talking to journalists and likes to uh, also hold forth, he is also very much a, ma a man who likes to portray the image that he doesn't have time for all this kind of media nonsense. He is working on his cases. He needs to prove them in court. And that's the most important. And that's something that, yeah, it really showed when he talked to us. He he gave the impression that he knew he needed to say something about it, but he was also very annoyed by the media's, you know, five-second attention span and, and why we're all looking at Israel-Palestine now and not looking at all the other cases that he has to deal with. But the critique that I kept on coming across uh, when I was putting together a, a piece about this during the summer was that there's really no clarity as to how much work the ICC has been putting into this investigation. The way he talks about some cases or how visible he is on some cases and how visible he is in other cases. It has to be said he also traveled to Sudan and Venezuela and he tries to travel to other places and, and obviously he can't go to Israel-Palestine for the moment. But um, but but Ukraine, I mean, we have this very swift investigation. I mean, of course, a lot of countries referred it. And of course, there's extra money for the OTP to do some of the work. They've got a lot of cooperation, a lot of uh, seconded people to work for them. But they've got these warrants out for arrest for the the very top level of, of the court. It just it. it it shows momentum, it shows determination, it shows that they're doing something. Absolutely. But it also, it, it creates a wrong impression. My uh, editors in London were like, when can the ICC do something? When can we expect arrest warrants? And I had to say, you know, Ukraine is a giant anomaly. That is like warp speed ICC style. I've never seen anything like this in, in a situation. So I understand why all this attention and also all the money and resources getting poured into Ukraine is not only the the OTP who who guides that it's also the the member states who give money and and try to earmark it for that situation. I do have to say that when he spoke to us for Reuters, he was also very clear that he isn't just looking at Israel and Palestine, but also at Mali and was lamenting that we're not giving a lot of attention to Mali or their crimes against Rohingya. He was talking about women and girls in Afghanistan. And so he is looking at all this and, and trying all this and, and is frustrated with the media for paying so much attention to one conflict over the other. And it seems that the, something like Ukraine and now Israel and the Palestinian territories sucks the oxygen out of all the other kind of atrocity crime stories that we could do. And I, I noticed that on the desk as well, if I want to write about Syrian accountability, as we had a case at the ICJ just last week, there was just no room because we're being asked to write less because the desk can't cope with the volume of stories that's going. So that, that just means that something like this takes up resources on every side. I put directly to Nazat Shamim Khan, the deputy prosecutor, that comparison with Ukraine. You know, her response was that one of the main differences is essentially the huge engagement on accountability in Ukraine. And, and that's really what has made that situation different from the others. We know that there was an unprecedented number of states which referred the Ukraine situation to the court. And when that happens and the prosecutor opens an investigation, in a way you're shortcutting all of these uh, jurisdictional issues that we had to go through with Palestine. And so immediately, as soon as it was opened, a team was put together and deployed. That's the first. The second is, of course, our jurisdiction in Ukraine is, a, is an Article 12 
uh, jurisdiction because Ukraine is not a state party. And so once you have that kind of very clear basis, legal basis, we know what we're doing. And the third is that we're getting a very high level of cooperation and access in Ukraine. So, you know, that immediately makes investigations much easier, much simpler. It does not stop our investigations. We will not give up just because we don't have access. But certainly it is much quicker, much more effective when we do have access, such as we have in the case of Ukraine. So in the case of Palestine, you can see that there is a, a differential basis then for our investigative activities when you compare it with Ukraine, where we can just fly in, we talk to the prosecutor general, we have access to the mass graves, we know exactly where the activity is happening, we've been able to work very closely, for instance, with the Dutch authorities on postmortems, on uh, forensic examination. That is, a you know, this is the way the ICC should operate for the future. It really is a model for the future, but we don't get that in every situation. And we certainly have not got it in the situation of Palestine. You know, I do get what she means. Ukraine is maybe what everybody says that we should be aiming at. It should be the ideal that all the countries around the world join in and at least as many as possible and uh, try to, to help the investigation and to help get accountability. But I am really conscious that I have heard no specific states talk about accountability in the Israel-Palestine context. Why is it that the international community doesn't join in with, with that same enthusiasm in Israel-Palestine as they do for, for Ukraine? Yeah, we see a lot of the calls that both sides should, should keep to international uh, humanitarian law. I think this is going to continue, and and this is a, a debate that keeps going on in international law. And so I think we'll be talking about this in a lot of podcasts to come. But it does seem that, as you can say in Dutch, they're measuring with two different measures. Not all situations are handled equally in in by the international community, and we've seen it before. But I think I guess I'm not surprised at the scale of it, but it's so uh, much more obvious. It's not as subtle, I guess, in, as in other situations. We were wondering um, what might be useful now to uh, to add to the debates uh, that we see uh, online rather than just uh, playing you clips of some of the senior officials uh, involved here. And we thought that maybe looking a little bit broader at whether international law uh, really can play a role in this situation might be useful, maybe as a bit of context for that, Steph, um, we should say that we're also not going to be speaking about only the International Criminal Court, but also about the International Court of Justice. So maybe you can just Stephopedia briefly what the International Court of Justice is uh, up to on Israel-Palestine. Well, the International Court of Justice, which is our other The Hague Court that we cover, is has currently before it a request for an advisory opinion, which asks the court to look at the legal consequences and um, the legality of the Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territories. And this was requested by the UN General Assembly. And as with an advisory opinion, this is going to, several states can uh, give their statements about it, and then the court will give uh, some kind of international legal finding from the UN's highest court about how, how they answer the question We've seen that before in the Israel-Palestine situation uh, at the ICJ, because in 2004, it was asked to say something about the legality of the wall that Israel ha was building between itself and, and Palestinian-occupied territory. This is not the first ICJ advisory opinion we've had on the Israel-Palestine situation. In 2004, the court uh, ruled that it was it was illegal for Israel to build a wall between uh, Israeli and Palestinian occupied territories. And in the same ruling, they said that Israeli settlements on a Palestinian territory were in breach of international law. Um, so this is a long process before you have this advisory opinion, and this has been going on and lobbying on the Palestine side for years to get this to the court. And we're looking at that it's probably going to play out at the International Court of Justice in the next year or so. 
I'm sure whatever we do on the podcast, we'll always get people uh, wondering why we frame things a particular way and uh, questioning our uh, naivety and our choices. Just to say we've uh, this time, rather than some Israeli academics we've had on in the past, we've got some Palestinian academics. Yeah, these are Palestinian academics that all work on international law. They're living outside of the country. And we ask them about how they see the current events and also how it impacts their work. So let's say welcome to professors, teachers, researchers, uh, two people who we've got joining the, the podcast, Shahad Hamori from the University of Kent and Atta Hindi, who's um, based at the moment at the University of Tulane. And maybe I could ask each of you, maybe start with you, Shahad, just to explain a little bit about yourself, why we've got you on the podcast and where your kind of interest in international law has come from. Okay, first of all, thank you for inviting me here and thank you for writing this platform and also for facilitating this conversation. So I'm a, currently a lecturer in international law at the University of Kent. I usually work at the intersection between public international law and international economic law. Over the summer, I was uh, one of the legal consultants working on submissions to the International Court of Justice uh, in relation to the case of the illegality of the Israeli occupation of Palestine. And Atta, tell us, uh, tell us about you. As you mentioned, I'm currently based at Tulane Law School in uh, New Orleans, where I'm the Murphy Visiting Assistant Professor working primarily on um, areas of the laws of war and race international law. I spent most of my life working on um, international justice, uh, including in The Hague. My connection with international law uh, comes from, like many Palestinians, from my past growing up in Palestine. As I like to say, what separates Palestinian international lawyers from other international lawyers is um, most international lawyers have never been shot at before. And um, those experiences in particular are what drives many of us to to work in this area of law, uh, issues of um, justice, international justice in um, not only Palestine, but the Arab world more generally. And you spoke now at about your experience and, and why this just kind of drove you to the path of international law. Can you both maybe say something about the how the current events are affecting you. And I don't know if you can already say how it affects your work, because we've only been two weeks in. On the other hand, you could argue that and this is an escalation in an ongoing process. So how does the current escalation influence you and your work? So to begin with, I'm currently talking to you from sick leave, because uh, I had to take a decision to request to, because uh, I felt that I wasn't able to partake specifically and the reason why that is is not just because uh, of the amount of pain that I'm feeling psychologically but the fact that it ended up being also physical pain because you're witnessing something that is of such a deep level of violence and something that I spend all of my time working and thinking about my speciality is specifically looking at war and I have studied extensively the wars in our region so Palestine Iraq Syria. And I am a critical legal theoretician, actually, because I am someone who came to international law very hopeful as a youngster, and then found out that this language doesn't have uh, words for me. So I ended up being someone who is inherently very critical of its frameworks. And as I did that, I became an expert in studying the violence that is embedded in its own language, and in language that seems quite all right humanitarian and quote-unquote civilized in front of you how much violence could that be in and uh, and I would usually talk about that in nice papers you know desensitizing brutality in the language of international law or uh, the Arab uh, the Arab self-determination and the inevitability of subjugation these all look like you know global south uh, uh, critical scholarship but as I talk to you today, the pain that I was expressing in these papers, the violence that I was alluding to, is very, very real in my eyes. I have never been under the direct risk of being bombed, but war has shaped my life vicariously through my psychological, economic, political surroundings. It has shaped my family history and it has shaped the people around me and the agony around me. Perhaps the fact that 
I haven't been under a direct risk of being bomb made that meant that I had enough privilege and mental capacity to do what I do. But it means that I don't have an exact direct relationship with that violence, but I'm very, very aware of it. And when I came to Europe to do my master's degree, it's as if I switched places and I saw how war looks like when it's only through a screen or a spreadsheet. And I found all the different reductivities of representation that could be there. I felt the distance of how at ease people could be talking about it. Yesterday, we issued a call for international law academics to sound the red alert on the incitement of genocide and the current possibility that a genocide is ongoing. I had international lawyers respond to me with the nitty-gritty details of a definition that we all know was very politically made. Uh, but then on evidence that is also being contested by different parties and to have to struggle to use these words for my people uh, and, and to have to struggle to even go in and claim something that is as obvious as 723 children who have died in one week and bombardment that amounts to the amount of bombs used in the past week was as much as the amount of bombs used by the US in one year in Afghanistan. And then for people to reduce that, and then we're stuck in the smallest details of things, there is something inherently frustrating about the whole process. If anything, what it has affected me in the past few weeks is that I'm grieving, I'm enraged, and I'm confused. I recognise so much of what you're saying, Shahad, in the sense of my own role. So thank you. I recognise that. I wonder, is this a way that it's actually affected how you are personally working now? Very much. There was a very big difference as I worked, for example, in the ICJ case between me and my other colleagues, because what I was trying to do is to translate the agony that I actually feel on, on paper. A lot of people would see that as delegitimizing my work, calling me de facto this emotional, angry Arab woman, you know. Our experiences are experiences that haven't been integrated into the lens of international legal thinking. So it is very, uh, to our frustration with it, and also our emotions are very, very, very viable. And not only that, we need to keep a very, very open mind to understanding how is it that we perceive things. It has affected me in the language that I use, and also it has affected me in what type of, how do I approach and comprehend my relationship to international law. The only way for me to international law to be an emancipatory thing, and I'll expand on this perhaps later on, is through the usage and the focus and the harmonization uh, of it with the language of self-determination and with more of the global south um, 1960s, 1970s frameworks that focus way much more on how pain is felt uncollectively. My main problem with international law is that it deprives me of a lot of the language that I use to describe that pain and delegitimizes it at different intervals just because it is, the sources did not acknowledge it, while we all know very clearly how politicized the sources are. So if anything, what has been happening it has affected my work in the sense that Yes, there is a part of it that has made it personal, and I've tried my whole life to not make that as personal, but to, to actually the capacity to zoom out. Uh, but at the same time, I do not think that that devalues our perceptions. Actually, I think that makes our perceptions more valuable as a, a premises for the critique of the overall violence that the system we have at hand normalizes. Well, it's obvious the profound impact it has on you. And I, I'm sure you voice a frustration that a lot of your colleagues feel. Atta, do you have similar experiences? Yes. What I would like to say is um, sometimes my general experiences growing up in Palestine is really what brought me here. Not to get too personal, but I'm, I'm a what I call a half-breed. My father was a Palestinian. My mother was Polish. So I'm also a European citizen as well. When she passed, when I was young, that's what had my father decide, I got to take these kids back to, to Palestine. And I like to say that my mother in her stead sent a thousand women to raise me. And one of those women was my aunt who used to work as a zakat charity, Islamic charity worker, and used to take me around the villages and camps around Jerusalem, Ramallah. And I would see the, the conditions that a lot of Palestinians were living in. I would put that as one of the defining moments that brought me here. Later on, I recall another defining moment that I was a young kid in the second intifada, and, and my family had been through a lot in the first intifada as well. 
but it was the images from Muhammad al-Durra, the young boy who was killed in early in the second intifada. We all grew up seeing things personally and seeing things from, from other aspects. And, and then 9-11 happened, and then it was a very scary decade, I would say, for uh, Palestinian and other Arab Americans here in the U.S. I had come back to the U.S. at the time, and I saw the way mobs were built up, the sentiment, the language. I like to say that Palestinians, Arabs, Muslims in the U.S., we kind of hardened up, right? And it was always as if we were not allowed to display emotion. We were held accountable. And I've kind of taken that to heart is where you won't catch that. I don't want anybody to feel sorry for me, but I will not. I'm not going to shut up. And this is my little way of doing it, working on international law and justice. It's what little I can do and working on issues related to protecting Arab Americans here in the U.S., for example, against discrimination, harassment. Everybody is good at something. Everybody does their part. Is it difficult? Does it affect the way we operate? Absolutely. I think that my fellow Palestinians, and I've seen it, I've seen it with Shet, are not given the opportunity to express emotion. In fact, they're punished for it. We're, we're not held to the same standard of free speech and academic discourse that our, our colleagues are. And then there's one particular thing I would like to say is that for many Palestinians, including those working on international law in some capacity in one way or another, by your very existence, you are expected to condemn everything that every other Palestinian does. But in no way is that same measure applied to any other race. But the minute you mention certain terms like resistance, it's not which is not even like a legal term per se, it's almost like you're done. Well, in our hearts, we know like what we work on and we're, we're trying to work on some idea that international law is supposed to apply to everybody equally. But we know that for many, including those who have forums, international law doesn't apply to everybody equally. And it's okay for them to say that, but we don't like to stoop to that level. Considering the difficulty of working in these fields that you both express, the difficulty of finding the language, finding the outlet, finding the spaces, challenging the language, all of that. Is international law, or maybe more specifically the institutions of international law, like the International Court of Justice and the International Criminal Court, what do they represent to you? Are they going to be symbols for you to achieve something? And if so, what? I mean, what role can they play? You know, I think for many years we have acknowledged that international law, at least as it concerns Palestinians, but also much like other individuals who are not in positions of power, that's not the answer, right? It's not international law will not, or at least alone, give Palestinians the emancipation that they think it would give. I've also written about this to a certain extent, is that we operate within legalistic constraints. I've been somebody who's worked on the International Criminal Court in particular over many years. And I was somebody who came in working for the coalition for the ICC back in the day. So you might have seen my name on several listservs in the late 2000s. It was something that I really sincerely believed in and came to realize that some of the issues that were being raised by critics of the ICC, man, they, you know, they were correct. Issues regarding power, issues regarding race, and race, I mean everything from lack of diversity within the court itself to case selection. Things started to, over time, make a lot more sense to me. And I felt like we weren't giving those critical voices what they deserved, the space that they deserved. Nevertheless, it didn't change the fact that we continue to work on, at least from the Palestinian perspective, that we continue to work on the court. I think over time, those, those kind of ideas have hardened or solidified a bit, right? Now, whether or not the court is going to do anything with relation to Palestine, I'll hold my breath. Sorry, I won't hold my breath, I guess that's the proper saying. <laughs> I've, I've said it in the past, for at least for many years with the court, or most of the court's existence, I've always said, isn't it funny how the situations that the court doesn't touch are those involving the Security Council and its allies? Right? If you look at all of the situations, it's everybody who the Security Council doesn't like or members of the Security Council doesn't like, even with respect to the case selection. And I would say that's the case for the majority. It still is, with the exception of Russia and Ukraine. 
it's it's also hard to operate in a system of double standards. And we also have to go to a little bit of history. And I'll I'll end on on this particular point. When when I was working on the court, one of the areas that I was very interested in was the issue of aggression. And we tried so hard. We tried so hard to get aggression in there. The language as included from the General Assembly resolution and no procedural hurdles. And if you speak to people, you'll find out overnight that there was a lot of interference into the language and the process, including in particular the U.S. And somehow people just, you know, states just ended up accepting it. They accepted it with all these procedural hurdles, basically stopping the court from really uh, showing teeth with respect to the crime of aggression. And then you've got a situation in Russia, which is arguably one of the biggest cases of aggression since, and nobody goes back to say, you did this. You created this culture of impunity and you allowed this to happen. And I like to say the same thing for Palestine. The court itself states themselves saying that we expect the court not to intervene in this particular situation. You created this culture of impunity that allowed whatever's happening today from every single party involved in the conflict. You created this culture of impunity. You allowed this to happen. You talked about deterrence, but you you gave the exact opposite. It's like people are surprised. I'm not. At some point, we knew something like this was going to happen. It was just going to get worse. We were going to have another Gaza. But for some reason, people are shocked. I hate to say that I wasn't. And Shahad Atta spoke about the ICC and his feelings about that. And you told us that you worked on the ICJ. What do you feel about whether the ICJ can do something or international law institutions can can actually make the situation better? Because the Palestine Authority has put also a lot of time and effort in getting these campaigns to get a question to the ICJ, to present the case to the ICC, to become a member of the ICC. In very short, my answer is the only way forward is to open up the question of global justice seriously within the theory of international law. The only way forward is to go back and answer the calls for a change in international legal theory as as seen and perceived by Judges Alvarez and Judge Amun in the 1960s and 70s. And by that, I mean they have pointed out that there was a huge change in the history of international law at the moment when most of the countries of the world were decolonized. And we had a lot of new actors that came into international law. That moment should have been the moment we look back and actually question the main presumptions that we base our thinking on. And by that, I mean international law as we know it today is an extension of Western legal thought as transposed from state law to international law in a lot of ways. And the reason why we keep it that way is very political. The calls by Alvarez, Amun, Bajawi, all of those were completely uh, overlooked. In the 1960s, 70s, 80s, we had a very big number of Global South states coming in and very big number of declarations and principles that they sought to develop. When you look at the Declaration of Friendly Relations, when you look at the Declaration on the End of Colonization, when you look at the uh, Declaration on the New International Economic Movement, strong language that had the capacity to capture how harm looks like when the very big factor of domination plays in, alien domination and elite exploitation, when these two interests collide together. There was a very big interest to capture how the people's will was, if you go back to the Algeria Charter. And these, when these people spoke, they spoke calling upon an ideal of global justice. And this ideal of global justice now is seen by uh, international scholars as far too indeterminate. And when you, for example, look at Kuskinemi's critique of Alvarez, he's like, yeah, but this could be used to serve his political criteria. There's this complete European distrust about the question of how do we understand justice? But I don't think me as someone who comes from the Global South background and who comes from people who are under settler colonialism think that the world can afford to uh, ignore the question of global justice and then thinking about international law. If international law is to me, it remains relevant. I always tell my students and I always say in my scholarship that international law is a very insecure discipline because it claims and premises its justice on the premises that on this ideal of justice. We give these really big words of humanity, equality and all of that to premise our justice. Yes, this is the language of 
quote unquote civilized people. And I'm very sorry to use that word, but this is the ethos of international. We still have that wording used in Article 38 of the International uh, Court of Justice statute. And meanwhile, the actual need to expand our perception, to expand our legal understanding, to understand how global injustice works is very, very big. And there's a very big push against it. So if I am to say what my position on the ICJ would be, uh, my only hope is that they actually attempt to actually in their legal reasoning and judging to have a call and to actually give the value needed to that history of international, to that legal doctrine, to actually treat these sources with the respect that they need. Because, for example, we have the right of self-determination as a use code norm. It is very big. Uh, it is very important. But I always say it's like my grandmother's old porcelain teacups. It's just like there in the shelves. We don't take it out. We don't use it. It's just there. It looks nice. We protect it, but we don't integrate it. We refuse to have a harmonized reading of international law that integrates how self-determination of the peoples looks like on the ground. And the International Court of Justice has to have the courage to actually partake in this question with the very open eye that throughout the history of international law, the lens with which we look at the Palestinian cause has been maimed with embedded racism. Whether or not we like it, this is as clear as it gets. So having worked at the case, I found I was met with a lot of hurdles because I was trying to push for that language and give legitimacy for that language. And I was pushed back and being called that that language is not legitimate enough, not doctrinal enough. And here again comes my grievance. Uh, with this very positive perception on, of international law and also this disdain, this disrespect for people who actually only identify their relationship with international law through the question of justice. I don't come hopeful like Ata. I actually call myself a happy nihilist. And uh, if anything, working on the war economy doesn't make you more of an optimistic person. But my choice to be hopeful um, is a very conscious one so that I will have a reason to wake up in the morning rather than just than just give up. And last but not least, because the Palestinian people have this very big question now, do we chuck international law away? And I even got a message from one of my very close colleagues who's worked for over 10 years now in the field. She's like, maybe we should just give up. International is not going anywhere. And my uh, very critical colleagues on the super critical aspect, they're like, yeah, we, we should just get rid of it. And now us as Palestinians do not have that uh, privilege. Us as people from our region do not have that privilege. Uh, it's here to stay and the only thing we could do is to try to tackle that insecurity and what I tell people is like to push on that insecurity as far as we can until this illogical, absurd, positivist status quo is put down to shame for the violence that it's actually hiding behind. And Atta, do you have a view on that broader ICJ advisory opinion? Because you've spoken mainly about the ICC. What about the other big elephant in the international institutions, institutions of international law, the ICJ? Yeah, I, I would just like to... Shahed attacked me for being hopeful about international law. <laughs> I didn't say I'm hopeful. <laughs> I... Um, I like to think of myself as a as a critical scholar, but um, the issue of the International Court of Justice or the story of it is not unlike the International Criminal Court, much like how there were situations where European states in particular, at least in one case, told us very clearly that funding uh, that they provided one institution that I worked at was not to be used in any way on the International Criminal Court. That was uh, clear language from European states, not on paper, of course. The International Court of Justice is very similar, is that there was a lot of pressure, and now there's pressure on the court to not continue for jurisdictional reasons and whatnot. And I think that with the ICJ, I think that the ICJ has, I'm, I'm, I'll speak about what it has, I'm not going to speak about what it's going to do, but what it does have is an opportunity to speak for the legality or illegality of the occupation overall. I argued in a piece that I published with Twaler, the Third World Approaches International Law Review, that based on previous arguments, they're not any, it's not anything special, based on in particular the arguments of Adi Mseis, another Palestinian scholar, that the court uh, should find the occupation illegal because it's only vis-a-vis -vis the occupation 
that you can find that serious breaches of peremptory norms, including the breaching the prohibition on the right to self-determination, are occurring. And you can't continue the occupation without breaching those serious breaches of peremptory norms. I do hope the court does, in fact, continue in a way that comes up with a strong opinion in this regard. But what I will say to Shahed's point is that it still does not capture the entirety of the Palestinian, even, even again, that's operating within the constraints of international law, doesn't capture the Palestinian experience. It would be naive and it would be just flat out wrong for us to say that such a determination could be made without prejudicing the rights of, in particular, Palestinian refugees. It really doesn't capture the essence of Palestinian suffering. But nevertheless, we operate within those constraints. And I think one more thing, just a very brief point I would like to mention, which I, I hope that people will listen to. I don't need the sympathy of other international law scholars. We don't need it. At the very least, we hope that you can show your human understanding. We're tired of terms like whataboutism, terms that you know they speak about. It's almost like saying all lives matter to black lives matter. Every time we try to say something, there's always a response. Palestinian and national uh, uh, lawyers are not going anywhere. And the Palestinian struggle is not going anywhere. <laughs> Never. It's, it's, it's always going to be here. And if you don't like it, then just at least accept that fact. And if, if you want peace, you're going to have to put that little justice part in there too. Because without it, I don't see how you think Palestine's any different than any other situation. It's the same, just like other situations of occupation. And I'll leave it at that. Well, uh, that was so many uh, interesting perspectives there from uh, Shahad and Atta. You know, things like the need to for these international institutions to have courage. I mean, and so many different references, a whole kind of curriculum in itself of critique of uh, how these institutions work. But should we just finish off the podcast F with uh, sort of coming back to some current events? Do you, do you have some final thoughts yourself? Well, I think in every in every kind of conflict situation or situation that we see that that eventually lands at the the ICC or even the ICJ is there's a lot of general perception about what international law can and should do and how it can and should operate and you know much like with the covid crisis that everybody on on social media was suddenly uh a virologist now everybody is an expert on international law and the Geneva Convention but there are very clear constraints and there's not a lot that international law can really practically do in, in these cases and these cases are only just fragments of a much larger mosaic of events and things that influence each other and politics and there is this idea that international law is extremely clear cut while the law of war is is much more complicated and what is you know we're going to look try and have another podcast to look at that more specific you know these kind of targeting civilian infrastructure what has actually been said and proven in court and how hard is it to prove these kind of things in court those are those are things that yes there is a law against it but the most important thing my partner said to me this week was that you don't need to have an opinion or uh, that you can say clear cut whether this is a crime or not. You know why? Why do people think it's so easy when we when we hire all these super senior judges? It's said in these very well paid international courts that take years to decide on cases whether something was or was not a war crime, and even then there's discussion. And so why would you in week one on Twitter have to get a clear cut opinion or an idea about whether it would fall under this or not? We have to realize how very complicated this is and how very limited it is by what it can look at. My personal resonances this week were the way that uh, there were kind of really deep seated emotional responses to what was going on. There was so much baggage around. I'm living at the moment in Vilnius in Lithuania, I mean, which was one of the places where the Holocaust was so severe, not because people were sent to concentration camps from here, but because people were slaughtered uh, in their own villages by their own neighbours. So that, that whole sense of to be killed because you are Jewish is just, it's seeped into the ground here. I mean, there's blood 
These are called the bloodlands. This is what happened here. And the other resonance was of the what happened in 1948, what the Palestinians called the Nakba, with the establishment of the State of Israel, where Palestinians were forced out of their villages or just to protect themselves, they just piled up a few belongings and ended up somewhere else, often in the refugee camps that we now see featured on our screens. We wanted to give the last word to Karim Khan, who also, when we talked to him, wanted to reflect kind of on the wider impact of the suffering he's seeing and, and not only talk about what international law can do, but also or did a very basic appeal to the humanity of all actors involved in, in this. There's tears and heartbreak and the spilling of blood in the Middle East. It's there in different parts of, of Africa or in Asia uh, or in, uh, in, in Ukraine, where we're, where we're also operating. And it goes back to the message I said before that we have our jurisdiction, we're going to do our best to make sure we don't just move for a quick round of applause. We have to make sure we don't repeat the errors of the past. We move when we have a realistic prospect of conviction and not before. We have to investigate actively incriminating and exonerating evidence equally, realizing it's easy to move, but it is necessarily difficult to prove cases in a court when they are challenged. Uh, forensically, and so we have to be extremely professional uh, and extremely objective. But at the end of the day, what is the law? It is a reflection of these basic elements of humanity. And so, in addition to the law, I think it's a moment to reflect on where we're going as a species. Because we are reaching, we are seeing this critical mass of conflicts, of real heartbreak, and we should take it very, feel it very acutely. So I'm sure we'll be back again. Uh, as you've already mentioned, Steph, we'll, we'll plan some more podcasts. Please do let us know what you would like us to, uh, to cover, any specific aspects of this conflict or, or other ones or other cases. And do remember to uh, give us some support on Patreon if you feel able or just uh, stick some money in the tip jar on the, the website so that we can carry on making these podcasts because we do enjoy doing them. Thank you for listening. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast, created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg. This episode was produced in partnership with justiceinfo.net, an independent site covering justice effort for mass violence. Music is by audionautics.com, and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.